Welcome to Not A Life Sentence, where we explore the idea that life's challenges are not a life sentence. Have you ever felt stuck or overwhelmed? Well, you're not alone. I'm Carla Kazan Barbaria, your host. On this podcast, we dive deep into topics that challenge the notion of permanence, proving that even the toughest situations are not a life sentence. I will be joined by guests, experts in the field, and people with lived experiences who will share their inspiring journey of overcoming adversity. We'll also explore practical strategies to navigate life's challenges and come out stronger on the other side. Hello and welcome to another episode of Not A Life Sentence. Today I am joined by um, someone whose name is a trademark, Joel Foster, founder of Reebok. Okay, Carla. So, hope Hello. it's all. What's the weather like down there in Australia? Pretty good. I am in Queensland, so it's summer, and in Queensland is a little bit hotter than in other That's states. Right. Another thing. So yeah. it is quite uh, hot, humid, but we are going towards the end of summer. Getting towards the end. We, well, we're getting towards, I, I can't say getting towards the end of winter because it is winter. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you located now? Because I know that you spend a lot of time in France and in the Tenerife, even though you say that Bolton is still home. Where are you talking to me now? We, are, we are in Bolton right now. We're, Bolton, we're we're here because we we do travel an awful lot, and, but uh, we have some podcasts to do. We have podcasts, and we're here in, until the end of February. We'll be here in, in Bolton. Then we'll start traveling again, Sri Lanka, probably uh, Dubai. We've got three journeys to America, and there is it, it is a foot that we'll be in Australia again, uh, either yeah. June or a bit later. Oh, okay. So you are coming in our winter. Yes, <laughs> And then it cools Even off. Though it will be much milder than the English winter. It will be much milder, much better winter. <laughs> yes. We loved our last visit to Australia, which was last year. And uh, we should have been only two weeks. We spent six weeks, but we had a ball. We had a ball. We went so many yeah. nice people. Oh, lovely. You started Reebok when Adidas was big and women were wearing men's small shoes. What yes. gave you the drive to persist and continue despite all the challenges? Well, um, if you've read the book, you'll realise that the family have been in sporting goods, sports footwear, for over 130 years now. That's a long time. And uh, the middle part of that was my father and uncle. My grandfather started a tremendous business. Fantastic. Yes. Known worldwide, particularly... In his era and in his sport, he was known worldwide. It was very nice business. But his sons didn't really keep the business that well. They didn't. There were five years between them in age, and they just didn't right. get on together. So they were fighting all the time. Yep. Eventually, when my brother Jeff and I sort of came to become part of the business, uh, we did realize that the business was failing because if if the partners don't work together, mm. uh the business fails. With that realization, and eventually, we we had to leave the company and set up our own company. So that's why we we set up our own company. Even though, as you were saying, Adidas Adidas were big, and Adidas it really owned the football business in the UK. So we couldn't compete. 
And that's what brought about the thinking of white space. Because white space is, where can we go that added us or not in the sporting industry? So we uh, we went into cross-country running, fell running, um, a lot of spaces. And we knew that within 50-mile radius of where we were in Bolton and Manchester, a lot of athletic clubs. And because we were near to them, we could actually go. We could go and talk to them, work with them. We could sell to them. You know, Adidas had to go through the retailers. We went direct to these people, and so we could build a business not competing with Adidas. We just went straight to our customer. You might say B2C, if those days, right straight to our customer. So that, because we had to sort of earn a living, we, we, you know, we had to keep, say, a family uh, tradition going. So we managed to do that, and we, we did that nicely, working with White Space. Eventually getting to America, and eventually, with that White Space in mind, finding aerobics. Um, with Jane Fonda. Yeah, more than just uh, finding aerobics, we found women because yeah. that was the real source. And when we made an aerobic shoe specifically for women and women's sizes on a woman's last, the men couldn't come near it. It didn't fit men. So like you say, instead of uh, women wearing smaller men's shoes, we just made a shoe for the women. And that, and I say, Jane Fonda came along and uh, use them in our exercise videos, and that was it. We just took off. From a $9 million company, we uh, we just grew to a $900 million business yeah. when we pivoted to women, and that took four years. And then you wanted to take your business to America, and we are talking about a time where, you know, we didn't have Zoom like we are using now. We, we didn't have mobile phones there were few international flights. America has always been the big dream, and but with minimal resources financially and logistically, how were you able to break through the American market? Well, in the first place, logistically it was difficult and very expensive to get to America. But yeah. the, the British government had decided that they wanted to help. So they paid return airfares, they paid for a stand at the NSGA show, which are the National Sporting Goods of America. There was a show in Chicago, so there we go. And the only, okay, that made it affordable, but the, the only problem with it was that uh, you got one chance a year to make a contact. Yeah. One chance a year, although it took me 11 years, it was 1979 before. 68 when I first went, 1979 when we, we really got into the market. I had six failed attempts. I'd picked up six people at different times, and they all failed. But in 1979, we got into the market. But as I say, you only get one chance a year because that, you know, you've got to go somewhere where there's going to be people. So the exhibitions, the shows, the NSGA show, that was the one. And we tried for 10 years to push into the market, but it was so hard. And I say, oh. we failed six times. But uh, running, our good fortune was that running, athletics, we were in athletics and running, it was growing very fast. Everybody wanted to go out to train, have just a pair of shoes, all you needed to, to go training. And then along came all the events, five kilometers, 10 kilometers, half marathons and marathons. And people started oh. to, uh, to run in them. And Runner's World was a magazine that, uh, that came out and grew fast with the running boom. They grew very fast to the point that uh, 
when they decided, uh, Bob Anderson decided that he could tell people which shoes to buy, that was an influence. That was one of the influences to uh, athletes out there. And although the first and second time he tried it, first second year, it failed. On the third year, he uh, he decided, because the first two had failed, instead of saying which was a number one shoe, he gave star ratings. So if you've got a five-star rating, you'd be one of the best. But you could get three or four shoes at five-star ratings. So we managed to get our five-star ratings in 79, and that made the difference. All of a sudden, we had credentials. All of a sudden, somebody told people that was a good shoe to buy. Reebok was good to buy. So at that point, there was a demand for the product, and that made the difference. We managed to get it as a running company. Yeah. I have the legend, <laughs> Joe Foster. If I were to ask you just for the listeners, so we can all learn from you and from your experience. Can you t- tell us about the psychology behind it? You had a chance per year, just once per year to be able to make it. What made you still try? Because, you know, the odds were not on your side. <laughs> well, I think you have to be an optimist yeah. and, and I think you have to have the attitude that you just keep going. You know, that okay. it's, it's out there. If you just keep going, the chances are you will make it. And although it took 11 years, and in order to do that, you know, you've got to be enjoying it. I was having fun. We were having fun in the UK and we were having fun building our business in, in different areas. But it was fun to go to America. It was fun to meet them the guys over there and to talk with them. And, and they were nice. The people we would see at the NSGA show loved the product. They loved to buy the product. But uh, it was really going through to the consumer. It's how do you get the consumer to buy the product? And uh, I learned that at an early age, even in the UK, when we started, when started off and went down to the retail stores and I would meet the, retail, the owner of the retail store and uh, he said, ah, very nice product, that, uh, Joe. Uh, but why, why do I need you? I've got, I've got Adidas and I've got uh, Bud Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And that was the question that, uh, that really struck home to me. Why do I need Reebok? He didn't need Reebok. I had to make him need Reebok. Mm-hmm. And the only way I could make him need Reebok was to go direct to the consumer. And once the consumers started to buy it, were the product, uh, the, the retailers noticed that we were supplying. And then the retailers came to me and said, look, uh, yeah, we'd love to stock your, your product. Please stop selling direct. And I said, well, you, you get the wholesale price. I, I only give 15% off to clubs, and I'm sure you could give 15% off. Some didn't like the idea that I would still be selling direct, but a lot of them decided that the demand was there, so they started to buy the product. And so this was the problem that we had to overcome, uh, and that is to make people want us. Yeah, exactly. You were named after your grandfather, the person that created the spike shoes. Was the name heavy to carry? <laughs> we, you know, When Jeff and myself, we left the family company, we didn't realize just how good our grandfather had been, not there wasn't much conversation. It's only as we sort of uh, became a sizable company that we decided, we knew bits about grandfather, but oh. we decided to research him. And we, we employed somebody just to do that, just to research grandfather. And we found what uh, he knew all about influencing. 
he knew everything. And so I, I think I'm fortunate to have been able to pick up his name because there's so many stories that behind my grandfather with many, many world records and also gold medals, you know, chariots of fire. The, so they won those shoes in the 1920s. They won their, uh, they won their gold medals wearing my grandfather's shoes. So th there's a lot of stories that we have there. You know, the, uh, and those stories make a big difference. Um, Joe, just to end this uh, session with, and I'd like to say a big thank you to you for making the time to be my, my guest. I know that you have two books now. Your first book is called The Shoemaker. And yes. I saw on social media yesterday that you have just released the second one, Survive and Thrive. And yeah. I must say, I love the title. What is it about? Well, having written Shoemaker, we've traveled a lot and spoke to a lot of people like yourself. And we have bumped into so many people who've been through a lot of uh, difficulty surviving and so many stories, a lot of great stories of how they survived before they went on to thrive. And th those people, we've already got the first book out, 20, 20 people with a chapter on their lives. And in fact, some of them didn't think they had a story, but some now, I think we've got two or three, have decided that uh, they'll write a book, a full book now. But there they are. So it's probably encouraging people to tell their story Everybody has a story, and it's amazing how the survival. Yes, I'm sure you'll read the book, but the survival stories of some of them are awesome, awesome. Yeah. I, I know we survived, but ours is a nice story. Some went through hell. Some have gone through so much agony, and yet they've survived. They've had oh. the courage to survive. So that, that's, what, that's what we're doing. In fact, we're already on book two. There's so many people with so many good stories. Yeah, and I think it coincides as well with my uh, podcast name, Not a Life Sentence, because what I am trying to say to my listeners, whatever you have gone through, whatever you have, you can still make a difference to the world and you can still enjoy life. Indeed, indeed. And, that, and as the opportunities arrive and change with... Uh, computers now with social media it is uh, it is amazing how many different opportunities arise the digital world is there to to make a living in and uh, tell your story so yes there's always something new yeah uh, well i can't thank you enough joy thank you so much and i wish you all the best i wish you health and i look forward to seeing you in uh, australia Oh, we're there. Yes, indeed. It's been, it's been great, Carla. Nice meeting you. And I'm sure you have a story as well. Everyone does, just, just as, yep. as you Everyone does. Yes. Yep. Thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Not A Life Sentence podcast. If you found this episode helpful, Please share it with others who might benefit. Stay tuned for more discussions on topics that matter. I'd be grateful if you could take a few seconds to leave me a positive review. It's a simple process and your feedback could make a big difference. Until next time, remember, nothing is a life sentence.